Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and choosing color palettes. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing this week? Oh, good. We're going to go a little off topic or out of order this week, and uh, we're going to kind of rush through my what would normally be my project update, since I don't have much of one to give, and then we'll talk about what Dave has been working on, and then we'll talk about what we're both working on. So let me dive right in. Um, before I talk about retrospective timelines, I wanted to talk about my other app, which is officially now dead. So long, long, long time listeners of our podcasts with an S on the end, particularly Masterly Unqualified Development, will remember that I made a Sprite Kit game in 2016. It was basically the app that I made after despairing of my inability to get anything done in the UI kit and core data and cloud kit the first time around. And I ended up decided to play with the game engine stuff and made a pretty basic game slash toy slash fidget app called Random Arrow, which was basically um, something to do with your hands when you're listening to podcasts, for lack of a better description. That's pretty much why I made it. <laughs> I wanted something interesting to do while listening to podcasts or audiobooks and made a little game out of it of basically presenting arrows on the screen and you had to swipe in the direction they were facing, but there were all kinds of little tricks about how they would appear. They would kind of animate in and from different directions and you had to kind of swipe in the direction of they were going to end up pointing. Some of them faded in slowly. Some of them faded out slowly. Some of them were really tiny. You know, it was basically, it, it wasn't a very good game, but it was a good learning experience. And uh, I decided to take it down. Um, I'd been kind of kicking around in my head what to do with it for the last couple of months. And I decided after testing it on a device that I hadn't tested it before, I decided to take it down when I realized I, I, I'm not sure if this is something iOS 13 related or device related or a processor series related, but the, uh, the test device that I used the sound effects were all off by milliseconds and it was just noticeable enough to me Ooh. and I tried it on other devices that I'd had it on for years and it was fine there. And I'm like, I'm not even going to, nope, just App Store Connect, <laughs> remove from sale. <laughs> like, nope, I'm not even going to try to troubleshoot this. It's just not worth my time. But uh, it was, you know, it was fun while it lasted. And I guess what I got out of that project and why I wanted to talk about it today is that was the first project that really convinced me that I could successfully step outside of the FileMaker world and still learn stuff effectively and make progress. And part of what convinced me of that is I basically went from zero knowledge to an app in the store in about six weeks. And we actually chronicled the process of that in Massively Unqualified Development. Um, and that project and that kind of boost of confidence that it got, that I got from that, led me to start bidding on projects like PHP projects and web apps and websites. And almost all of the work I've done there, my consulting business has come 
outside of the FileMaker world, which has been, you know, I'm still doing some FileMaker stuff, but I don't think I've picked up a new FileMaker customer since 2016 or 2017. Oh, wow. Had, uh, yeah. And I definitely have made a new database as, as like a ground up new project since at least 2016. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I never really made any money off of the app. It was on sale for 99 cents for about a year and then I made it free and I never really went back to it because shortly after I shipped it, I had learned enough about SpriteKit to start to be interested in Unity and then it was kind of a slippery slope into VR <laughs> obsession for the next two and a half years. And we know the end of that already. Um, but after spending a lot of time in VR and Unreal Engine and Unity, it just felt kind of silly to go back to SpriteKit. And if you want to follow that story, it's all VR Hermits podcast. Yeah, the ending was it didn't go very well and we made Project Update. So yeah, that's kind of what is happening with Random Arrow. It is officially gone. And, uh, you know, that was fun. So a couple other small topics. Um, Apple released a big iOS beta last week or the week before. I can't remember. Um, there was a new iOS beta, some Xcode betas, and basically just getting their spring updates ready. And I'm not going to talk about all of it, but there was one tiny change that has me curious slash excited where they added a new category, actually two new categories, to the iOS App Store for the first time. And one of those new categories is developer tools. And it just got me going, hmm, can I have Xcode, please? <laughs> or something to make Swift UI apps. So I have no reason to believe that's coming anytime soon, but you know, it just yeah. seems like they wouldn't add that category unless they needed that category for something. Hmm. Yeah, Xcode for iOS. Yeah. Or as some other people said, maybe not Xcode, but maybe just like a a Swift only development environment, and maybe even a Swift UI only development environment. I can see them wanting to do that, but Swift UI is still too limited for what it does for that to actually be a viable way to make most apps. So I can see them maybe introducing that at WWDC this year if they fix all the bugs with Swift UI as it stands now and start adding in all the features that it's missing. Because right now you can make an adequate app with Swift UI, but you you can't make a great app with Swift UI. Right. And I, you know, if anyone's listening that wants to challenge me on that, then send me a link to your app and I will send you an email back of all the things I think are wrong with it. <laughs> and, it, you know, most of them are not developers' faults. They're just stuff that we can't do natively in Swift UI. So anyway, hopefully we'll get something on the iPad. I'm not necessarily looking to jump ship from the Mac entirely, but being able to work on my iPad when, especially when my hands and arms are killing me, is it's a good escape hatch of being able to do more work in a different environment, even though sometimes it's slower work. Like we talked about when I was doing the WordPress project a couple of months ago, um, it's all WYSIWYG based with this WordPress theme and I could do all of that on the Mac with the keyboard and 
mouse and some keyboard shortcuts, or I could do it on the iPad with a new iOS 13 kind of full desktop browser. And it worked pretty well there as well. And it was, I guess my only problem with switching to iPad for work like that is it's everything is a little bit slower, at least for a while. And some things just take more steps to go through just because it's, it, it's a touch first interface. So I'm interested to see what would a Swift UI or an Xcode environment look like on iPad and uh, how much control were they actually going to give us of that. So yeah, we'll see at some point. Maybe this spring, maybe this WWDC. Here's hoping. So with what little I have to say about retrospective um, this week, I didn't really get much time to work on it. I had three projects kind of all give me approval at the same time. So three projects starting at the same time. And the hardest part about a new project, <laughs> it's starting a new project. So... <laughs> It's uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks, and it's three totally different projects too. Um, one I'm doing, I'm basically the entire front end of an application. Another I'm the entire back end of an application with no access to the front end, and then another one is an API mig migration, which that one is much more straightforward. Like, I'm basically just migrating from FileMaker's PHP API to the new Data API for a web app. But it's been it's it's going to be an interesting couple of months to say the least. But uh, I had some time to kind of review what I had done with retrospective timeline so far, and I was going through and cleaning up my notes for the app, and I realized like I've got a lot of text here, <laughs> like an awful lot of text. And I know I take a lot of notes and write stuff down a lot, but I wanted to quantify it, so I went through my folder of notes for just version one of the app. So December 1st and before, and threw everything into a single text document. And I had over 90,000 words of notes that I had taken. <laughs> and this is, this is just me writing stuff down, like checklists, brainstorming stuff, outlining, you know, paragraphs about what was wrong with a certain issue or stuff like that. It's just a ridiculous amount of documentation that I'm capable of producing. And I'm wondering, if this is like the primary cause of my RSI, is I literally talk to myself too much. <laughs> I need to cut down on typing to myself so much. So something else that I was thinking about, since I'm not really actively working on retrospective timelines, there's, I've been kind of working or wanting to work on the visual timeline feature, and I had some stuff prototyped and I still have some thoughts on that but I I basically designed myself into a wall and got stuck for a while and put it aside to start working on some other stuff and over the next couple of days I slowly solved all of the problems that I was having with retrospective timelines design wise without actually touching Xcode or opening the project or anything it's just like that project just sat on the back burner and you know, stretching the the kitchen metaphor, I basically was making a reduction. So just very low low heat on the back burner for a very long time, slowly reducing the concepts into a nicer idea. And uh, it's just interesting, like, obviously we've all been there before where the first time 
when you're stuck on something, you can quit working on it and do something else, and it'll eventually solve itself for you. But this was just a really good example of of that principle, but the fact that I'm doing basically four different types of work right now. So I've got the Xcode stuff and the Swift UI stuff for my app. I've got some PHP development to do for a web app. I've got several FileMaker databases and servers that I maintain. And now I'm doing a SOAP API integration for another system. And then some Vue.js stuff. So yeah, it's, it's just kind of like, if I get stuck on one, I've got plenty of other things to go to to get unstuck. And the work is different enough that I don't really feel like I'm just treading water. So yeah, that's kind of a scattered update this week. I hope to have more to say on the visual timeline soon. Um, I just need to actually have some clock time to put against it so I can actually start coding out some stuff. But not this time. Hopefully next time. So what's going on with you, Dave? Well, my uh, big work for FM Comparison was doing hierarchical association. Um, and that has to do with having FM Comparison properly retain the separation between sub-elements. So, in a simple sense, if the... If I don't decide that two tables are actually the same table, you know, the old version and the new version, if I if I decide that these two are not the same thing that should be compared, but that it's actually delete the old one and create the new one, none of its child elements, none of the fields within that table can be marked as just modified. And there were ways in the current code where that could happen because it was looking at each element as being completely independent from every other element in the system. And so if you think about it, it could say that these two layouts are not the same layout, but Hey, what do you know? These two, you know, images on the layout are actually the same image, and so those are connected. And they can't be. <laughs> you know, everything on a new layout is by definition a new object. Yeah. Um, and if a layout doesn't have a matching layout in the new version, then every object on that layout was deleted. No matter what else happens. <laughs> so what if I... So I run a, a DDR with file A, and then mm -hmm. I open the file, I duplicate a layout, make a bunch of changes to the duplicate, and then delete the original. What happens, what should happen from a user perspective? Um, does the new layout that you created have exactly the same name? Yeah, yeah so I, I duplicated okay. it made some changes, deleted the original, and renamed it the same name, put it back in you know, the same scripts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So at that point, what it'll do is it will 
notice that you've got a layout with the exact same name but not the same ID. Mm-hmm. And say, this layout's ID was changed. But at that point, it would still connect them. Okay. Interesting. Um, there's still some stuff there that I have to play with under the new code. Because, yeah, so the, the original version had these nice little chunks of code that would run one comparison type. Mm -hmm. So I basically had four comparison types. Um, exact match, like everything's exactly the same. ID, name, content, settings, everything. It's like, okay, if we can find all the exact things and link them up first, everything else becomes simpler. Because most of the time when you're comparing two systems, 95% of the content is going to be exactly the same. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you didn't change everything in a system between two versions. There would be no point in running a diff. Yeah, we're only running diffs every five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what I had were these nice little chunks of code that would run each of those comparisons completely independently. And so you would, it would say, okay, make all the exact matches. And it would run a loop through all the old items and then check all the new items to see if it could form connections. And then it says, okay, start over and try and form connections with name and ID. And then the third one would be just name matches. Um, and then the fourth one was just ID matches if you had that option turned on. And this was very nice, concise, understandable code. And if I came up with some kind of new logic for a new way to link these things, it was relatively simple to just create a new method mm -hmm. and add that in the appropriate spot in the order of the connections that it would form. Straightforward, fairly simple. Two big problems. One, it's effectively a loop in a loop. Yeah. So loop through all the old items and then loop through the new items trying to find matching things. Yeah, that's a lot. It, it is, and it's, it's pretty inefficient. Um, in big O notation that we've talked about previously, it's O sub N squared. So as the number of records increase, the time that it takes to perform this operation increases by the square of the number of records. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you look at the notation written down, it's actually, it, it looks like the face you make when you're thinking about it. <laughs> I'll have to throw that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it wasn't exceptionally efficient code. It was, it worked, and it was very easy to understand. It was fairly self-documenting. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other big problem that I had was if I need to add code that happens after a link is established, I effectively needed to add it to all of them. Each of those linking loops had to have its own version of, well, what do I do now? 
And the important thing that this is for is if I say this table is linked, I then immediately jump out and say, okay, let's compare just the fields within that table because I want to connect those before anything else happens. And so that was, it was just going to have kind of these same chunk of calls repeated in all of these different places. I didn't like it very much. So the new version kind of rotates that whole thing 90 degrees. Um, and it's one big loop. And it's still pretty simple to understand. <laughs> um, that worked out fairly well. It's a, the kind of code that's a little bit harder to write if you haven't figured out the whole thing before you start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so having previously done it, it was much easier to do it this way. It was also easier to understand where I was going to need to do some optimizations. And there are technically premature optimizations, but they were ones that I knew I was going to need. So it runs through the list, and then on these things, it tries multiple length types until one of them connects. Um, and then instead of... So I, I'm looping through the old items and looking for matching new items. But instead of looping through the new items, and I was actually just using like a, a filter function, but behind the scenes, effectively, that's just running some kind of loop. Mm -hmm. um, I converted the new items to a dictionary using the data that I would use to connect things as the key in the dictionary. Mm. Now, to a certain degree, this is pretty inefficient. I've got to take a great big array of items, and in a large project, that could be 200,000, 500,000 items. I mean, a lot of items. And i got to take the hit to turn 500,000 items in an array into 500,000 items in a dictionary. Doesn't really sound all that great. But this is a one-time hit. And if I'm going to be asking... If I'm going to be looking into the array 500,000 times, mm -hmm. it is way more efficient to look into a dictionary 500,000 times. Yeah, especially you only have to look in the dictionary once instead of having to look in the array and loop over it 500,000 times for each yeah. individual instance. So yeah, 500,000 yeah. loops through a 500,000 item array. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so effectively what I was doing was I was building my own indexes. Mm -hmm. um, I could just dump all these things in. I put together some nicely abstracted code that would basically just build an index based upon a property that would tell it what kind of index it needed. And so with a single line of code, I can say, turn this array into a appropriately structured index for all of this data on this criteria. Um, and so, like I said, technically, there's a pretty big performance hit there. Practically, huge speed increase. Um, and then the third thing that I did in this was then doing the hierarchical association. So find the table, get the fields. Find the layout, do the layout parts. And layout parts are actually slightly complicated because they don't have keys. Basically, the only thing that's in there in the new XML so far is 
the name of the layout part, effectively a description of what it does, and the height of the layout part. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so without the hierarchical connection, it was linking those things in all sorts of weird places. Now it's just doing them on the ones for a single layout. This also gives me a really cool thing. I haven't built the code for it yet because it's largely more interface side than back end. But I have the ability to rerun a small portion of the diff hmm. based upon a changed state. And so what this is cool for is one of the features that I really want to add at some point, which is the ability to say, yeah, I know I said you could link by IDs, but these two things shouldn't be linked. Mm -hmm. And so you could break the link and it would rerun the diff for just that little section of the diff based upon your new manual rule. Or more interesting, if you said, no, 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 these layouts actually are the same thing. I know I changed the names and the IDs, and there was no way for you to know that they're the same thing, but I know they're the same thing. Mm. So go ahead and treat these as connected objects. And it can then just rerun the diff in, you know, half a second for two layouts, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, there's still a little bit of stuff I got to play with there because it looks at things and says play with this object until you form a connection if you can it might form a looser connection than it should thereby consuming one that actually would find a perfect connection at some other point does that make sense mm -hmm. it's like if you're if you you know, playing like a big game of, I don't know, Duck, Duck, Goose or Tag or something. And you're like, yeah, these are connected now. And it's like, no, you really shouldn't have gone after that person. They were too well hidden. Um, I don't know. It's my brain thinks of it as game theory, but it's just trying to figure out exactly what order you link these things into. Mm -hmm. I still may end up with something that goes through the items in four loops rather than one loop but that's going to require a minor modification of the code that I've got right now and it'll be fine. So this is way more abstracted, way more granular code that does tiny little bits of things. And it's in the long run going to be great. Unfortunately, it took a lot of thinking time and a fair amount of coding time. Yeah. Well, the, the uh, real question is how many unit tests did you write for it? So far, none. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very uncharacteristic of you. <laughs> no, it's classically characteristic, which is part of the problem. Oh, nice. Um, but it, this it's code a, is... It's a relapse. Yeah. This code is going to be much easier to unit test. Um, the old one kind of paid attention to state. There's too many places in native code to store data. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of going by state. And the new one, because it's more abstracted, wants to have everything handed to it in parameters. And parameters make things much easier to unit test. Because you can hand them anything. It doesn't care where the data came from. Where the data is stored, how it's organized, doesn't matter. Here, compare these two things. Done. 
which is how I'm going to get that cheap relinking and delinking code later. So, mm-hmm. yay. Um, also spent a fair amount of time playing with the GUI. Um, really kind of sitting down and taking another look at it. Mm-hmm. And the GUI had kind of grown a little organically. I was learning too much about too many code platforms simultaneously mm-hmm. yeah. to, to really sit down and plan it out. Cause I didn't even know at that point what was going to be possible. I didn't know what I was capable of doing. And so there just ended up being kind of development crufty fields left on sections of the, of the, screen and you know stuff that i needed for development but not necessarily stuff that had to be there for the end product for end users um it isn't terrible in html especially in view because it's got a really nice component system and so i can alter components pretty much in isolation from each other Mm -hmm. but just cleaning up a component wasn't necessarily the right answer. The right answer in some of these cases was throwing out the way I had organized the components and putting them together in a different way. So you can do it organically. It's not terrible, but it's not optimal. And through this, I realized that I really need help. (laughs) I just can't do all of this myself mm-hmm. and really making peace with the fact that I am not an exceptional web designer. Um, it's just one of my limitations. There's something about the way that HTML works and being fuzzy about the placement of items that just always bothers me. And I've never been able to get over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if I'd continued going, We would have ended up with a very functional application that was a little rigid in its appearance. Which could kind of be said of FM perception. Uh, Yes, absolutely. It's actually one of the most common complaints that I get from FileMaker developers is that FM perception isn't very Mm FileMaker-y. I went so far into native GUI elements that there's a, a level of crafting the interface around the user and the way the user thinks of the problem rather than just here is the answer to your question Mm -hmm. that FileMaker developers in particular really kind of expect because that's the way a lot of them make their systems. And so this has always kind of been a thing that's been floating around in my head and I've been struggling with it a little bit. And basically it was just throwing up my hands and going, I need help. And um, to the eternal benefit of this podcast, the person that I went to for help is Joe. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to get into this a little further, but in general, just from the conversations that we've had so far, Joe's involvement is going to make for a much cleaner interface. He's looking at it less from the development perspective and more from the user perspective, which he can do because he hasn't been thinking about this particular problem the entire time. He's coming in at this point and seeing, okay, you're generating all this data. That's great. 
show me what I need to see to get my job done mm-hmm. rather than a giant flood of data. And there's much more intentionality to it. Plus there's a the fact that even after a couple of hours of him poking around, the GUI has already gotten noticeably better. <laughs> Joe's had the ability to solve some problems that I had with the GUI that I spent a week and a half poking and prodding at and got nowhere. And Joe was like, poke, 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 45 minutes to an hour later. Hey, look. I'm like, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's simultaneously utterly infuriating and validating. It's like it validated the decision and pissed me off simultaneously. Nice. Um, <laughs> so none of that's to say that I am an expert web developer by any means, but I am a pretty good UI developer and UI designer. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the best case of my current work is my app, but also plenty of websites and some web apps and lots and lots and lots of FileMaker systems. Yeah. And really, FileMaker is where I honed the skill of making things that look good, but also function really well and are intuitive. And I think FileMaker is one of the ideal places to learn this because... You can do this stuff in a design tool like Sketch or Adobe XD or something like that, but you can't make an app with those. You can make a picture of an app, but with FileMaker, you can make the whole thing, all of the data and all of the scripting interaction and behavior. And sure, you know, it's not as flexible as native code. Well, I guess it's not as expansive as native code and it's not as flexible as web code, but you can make really good stuff that people give you lots of money for in FileMaker, which is its primary purpose for me. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot of those skills there. And then kind of like what I was talking about at the beginning of the show with Random Arrow of like building that confidence to step outside of FileMaker, working in PHP and Bootstrap and other systems like that um, to make, you know, I think a lot of, what we talked about at the end of Massively Unqualified was my kind of massive project at the beginning of 2017, which was basically, you know, a six-month project to build a a web front end to a system where the entire back end is a FileMaker database and some SQL databases, but the front end is, you know, a customer portal where users have to log in and enter in all kinds of required data for the state and make payments and get receipts and do tax receipts and send notifications and stuff like that. Like it's, it's a, it's a whole thing. Like there are, that project probably has more code than anything else that I've written. Um, but it was a project that I quoted and got approval for, got paid for up front in advance before I had ever even started the tutorials on PHP. It was really, it was random arrow that gave me the confidence to do that. Like I can learn this quickly enough to be able to do this stuff. And that's kind of what I'm doing with Dave. And I think Dave knows what he's getting himself into. I've not worked with Vue. We're working with Vue.js for the the front end of this app. But until a couple weeks ago when we talked about this, I had never worked with it before. And I've spent some time with it since and it's pretty cool. And I still have a lot to learn with it, but it's a... I don't know, it's just a weird place to be professionally where I'm basically offering consulting services 
for things that I'm not an expert in and, uh, you know, learning how to be okay with that. Because a lot of times people aren't necessarily paying me for expertise in a specific platform. It's more of the, the general problem-solving skills and thinking skills that I bring to a project that's obviously you know, often more valuable. Yeah, how to think about a project, how to think about information and data and interface mm-hmm. and things like that. And the code is, in some ways, almost the smallest piece of any of those. Yeah. So learning those skills in FileMaker was really helpful and stepping outside of FileMaker really helped me hone those skills because you start to see the commonalities, like what is dependent on the platform and what is a universal thing that you need to learn regardless of the platform. So I know a lot of FileMaker developers are hesitant to to step outside of FileMaker and try something else, but I definitely recommend it. Pick something, you know, pick some kind of small objective that you want to make and uh, find something else to make it in. Or even do what I did was kind of reproduce some of my sample projects or some of my personal projects from FileMaker, reproduce those in another platform like Swift or Vue.js or some PHP library. Yeah, but Joe's caveats to the contrary, his UIs look better than mine. <laughs> just That's true. They just do. <laughs> I... I make a, a a pretty useful UI. Joe makes a good UI. So, thank you. Um. So, uh, there's going to be upcoming kind of a weird little adjustment to some of the flow of the way the podcast goes, because we're going to end up getting to talk about some things that we haven't previously gotten to talk about substantively. Mm-hmm. Um collaboration you know working with multiple developers on the same project uh getting a little more heavily into version control Mm -hmm. um shared bug reporting and feature tracking and planning those kinds of things um is all going to make for interesting podcast content i -hmm. think yeah definitely especially some of the stuff around tooling um Mm -hmm. Because I know every every developer is a little obsessive about the tools that they use. And I think you figured this out because you make developer tools for a living. <laughs> so, I don't know. The, I think the biggest change for this project for me is I've been using Atom, A-T-O-M, as my primary code editor for the last five or six years. And uh, Dave had me step into VS Code for this one, which I looked at briefly and was like, that's really neat. Anyway, I'm comfortable over here. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I looked at it maybe once a year for the last three years. And uh, I finally had to spend some time in it the last couple of weeks. And I think I told Dave offline that uh, it's VS Code is like staying in a really nice hotel, but everything is in French and I don't <laughs> speak French. <laughs> Like, this this plate's great. I have no idea what's happening. Like I don't know what any of this is. It's it's definitely a slightly weird environment. Mm-hmm. I'm getting used to it, but there's definitely there was one I was trying to figure out. Like I know this thing has key bindings for everything you can imagine, and I wanted to mimic the you know Chrome and Safari key binding where you hit Command 
one, two, three, four, on and on to go to the different tabs that are open. So if you hit Command three, it'll go to the third tab. And it didn't have that key binding; it was mapped to something else. And I'm, you know, using the little search and filter box to like, you know, with a tab thing, command, all different kind of keywords I can think of, and I just couldn't find it. And eventually, I just started scrolling through everything until I found it. And it, the why I couldn't find it by searching for it, the action that it was bound to was like window.action.frame secondary system tab one, like something like that. Like it was just, it was developer named like properties yeah. for an object. Like, ah, this is why. It, it can get a little inscrutable in those ways. And it's particularly bad because there's 800,000 settings. Yeah, there are too many settings. Yeah. I Where want with... I want VS Code for dummies. Yeah. I, I believe it's called Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Adam has a lot of the same features, but it's just a way more stripped down UI. It's a bit more opinionated than VS Code. Yes. And, uh, I kind of wonder if the writing is on the wall for Adam because it was made by GitHub. VS Code is made by Microsoft. Microsoft bought GitHub. Are they really going to continue supporting two Electron-based code editors? Probably not. Hmm. So it was probably it was probably time to move on anyway. But uh, it's definitely going to take some getting used to. But I did move my other projects. That was kind of the the real test. I had some updates to do on a PHP site, so I moved that project over to VS Code last week and spent some time there. Of like, okay, I already know here's here's the ten things that I need to, this to do. Let me make myself learn how to do them over here, and that was pretty beneficial. So it went well. Mm -hmm. So far, yeah. Mm. So view. Let's talk about view a little bit. Okay. View J S V U E. We're not we're not saying the word view. Um, I assume that's how it's pronounced, and uh, that's the front end. JavaScript framework that Dave selected for the project. And I have heard of these things, Vue and React and Angular, these kind of front-end toolkits for making stuff, and never really worked with them too much. And even when working with SwiftUI, a lot of the story around SwiftUI is how Apple is finally getting into this type of design patterns and programming that React and Vue and others have been doing for years. And I you know, I hear that message and I nod politely and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> anyway, SwiftUI is really cool. And then I start working with Vue and like, it is just like SwiftUI. Like obviously the <laughs> syntax is way different, but a lot of what I just spent six months learning applies to this as well. And I'm really happy. Did you catch any of the commentary from people when SwiftUI was announced that they were looking forward to Apple making another output from SwiftUI that would do JS? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that would be interesting. Could be neat. Yeah, if if Swift could basically be the you know the back end language to the front end, I don't know how many people would actually adopt that. Because honestly, like writing Swift isn't easier than writing JavaScript. Uh, there's a couple of ways it's easier, but <laughs> we're. I'm not going to mm. dig into that too far at this point. Yeah. Um, even assuming that I was 
competent enough in JavaScript to have that conversation. Like I, I can do some pretty cool stuff in JavaScript, mm -hmm. but I am not 100% fluent if it's even possible to become 100% fluent in JavaScript. Yeah. So most of the projects that I have, JavaScript is the last tool that I reach for. It's more often like, can I solve it in PHP? Can I solve it in CSS and HTML? Or do I need a little bit of JavaScript sprinkled on to get a behavior just right? And that's, so I've always used it pretty sparingly. Um, this is the first time I'm writing it as like the primary language for the thing and it's doing all the work of producing everything else. So that part's kind of weird. But yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. It's it's interesting like working with Vue you don't really step out into JavaScript proper that often because everything is in Vue or one of the frameworks that you're using. Yeah. So it's it's definitely kind of neat. And it it's also way more opinionated than Swift UI when it comes to here's how you should do stuff. Here's how mm. you expect you to do stuff. And Swift UI is like, we didn't know how you would want to do this, so here are four ways. Take your pick. <laughs> we'll deprecate the rest later, but we're not going to tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, in in general I've been pretty happy with it. Yeah. It's Dave had me look into Vue X and Vue Router. Um, cause those are two big components he's using as well. So one is, uh, view router is basically navigation for lack of a better term, just a really well, a really good way of kind of streamlining the navigation stack and keeping all that logic in one place and then being able to reference it all over the place without actually having dependencies all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then view X is a state management system that is pretty pretty tough to wrap your head around at first but you know by the second or third example it starts to make sense like yeah you, you actually have to build something with it before it makes any sense yes yeah i found the same thing with the router mm -hmm. it was like i i was poking around and trying to solve some particularly icky problems and everything I was reading was like, yeah, we just use view router for that. And I'm like, I've read the documentation like three times. I still can't understand what this stuff does. Yeah. And so I ran a couple of tutorials, built a couple of things and went, Oh, got it. Okay. Yes. This totally fits the bill for what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah, just some neat stuff for updating certain portions of the screen without updating the whole thing or updating the whole thing or individual pieces and it'll catch the commands that you sent and just kind of know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and the state management stuff is neat because the, I've got this backend integration where it passes off information and commands to native code in C sharp and has to be able to pass data back and forth and making it so that all of that integration happens in a single shared state and whatever portions of the UI need to update automatically update. Mm -hmm. It really reduces the amount of kind of glue code that I have to use. And I was, prior to that was spending a lot of time passing data between components. 
Yeah. So this component would tell this other, you know, this part of the screen would tell this other part of the screen what data it should display. And that was fairly tightly linked across there. And so changing that so that each of those components just knows how to query the state and get its data out gave me really nice data separation pretty cheaply mm -hmm. once I figured out how to use it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the components and views become really, really simple at that point where they're just referencing the store to get their data instead of having a bunch of logic or data translation code wrapped yeah. up in them. So yeah, it's pretty neat stuff. So one other topic that we're kind of figuring out this week is how are we going to do all this work from a logistical standpoint? And we, you know, we're both independent developers who work on our own for the most part, and uh, we need to work on stuff together. And particularly, didn't want to just do everything in email because that can be mm. kind of hard to manage with lots of threads or lots of topics and didn't really want to do everything over messages and I don't know I don't have a slack set up maybe Dave does I have um, a number of slacks set up but yeah, yeah. Nice. so we were thinking about uh, the repo is in Bitbucket and Bitbucket has issues so we may use that and uh, a, a feature called issues it also has issues but that's a secondary yeah. thing yeah I've never really liked that term but Issues are basically like tickets or tasks or features. I think issues was the most generic word they could come up with because people use it for bugs and um, to-do lists and features and stuff like that. But uh, it's got a system for that. It's pretty basic. And it's in, I think it's intentionally basic in Bitbucket because they want you to use Jira for the more advanced stuff. And Jira is pretty cool. I use that on a project in 2018 with another team and it's pretty good it's a lot of text in a proprietary format that you can't really get out very easily um, and then I was this morning I was actually thinking about moving my repos back to github because I was looking at their tools for this stuff and everything that Jira does with Bitbucket github does all in one place, including being able to do the, all your issues as markdown files. And they've got, you can basically use everything in the GUI on GitHub to manage all your issues and like a, a Kanban board and things like that. All the text in your issues can be marked down, but they've also got an API, a REST API to work with that data. So you could in theory, and I may end up doing this for a retrospective timelines, continue to work in my giant rat's nest of text files and have each of those text files be an issue in my project that is then tagged and categorized and versioned where it needs to be with the project. So I have no idea if any of that affects this project, but I was looking at that this morning and thinking, this, this is awfully tempting. Yeah, it's probably time for me to take another look at GitHub. Um, originally, I chose Bitbucket for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One was it had support for Mercurial mm -hmm. rather than just Git. And when I started playing with version control, I was working entirely in Mercurial. So allowing me to keep all of my repos in one cloud storage thing 
was great. Yeah. Now they're end of life and mercurial support. And so I'm going to have to pull all those out and kind of recode them as Git repos, which there are tools for doing that. And I just have to sit down and do it sometime before May, I think, is when the cutoff is. Something like that. Hmm. Um, The other thing was that initially when I first started working with version control, GitHub only gave you like two or three private repos before you had to start paying a fair amount for it. Mm-hmm. And Bitbucket was unlimited private repos before you start paying for it. They want to yeah. make all their money in team services and Jira integrations and stuff like that. And um, I think that's still the case for GitHub, where it's three private repos for free or $7 a month for, I think, unlimited private repos. Yeah. And $7 a month is nothing. Yeah. So... But yeah, I should probably take another look at GitHub and see if I like its overall feature set mm-hmm. better. Yeah, I've been kind of looking at it again because so much of the iOS community lives there. Like a lot of people write blogs directly oh, yeah. from GitHub and do all kinds of code snippets from there. So it just kind of feels like if I'm going to work in that community more, it's probably better to be in the same place. It, it's, it's definitely weird, like people use their GitHub account almost like a live resume as well and that part's always really interesting I, I never really see anybody using bitbucket that way no bitbucket's definitely i don't know if i'd call it an also ran but it's the second kid mm-hmm. it's very utilitarian like it definitely gets the job done i mean the reason i switched to it i was using github for a couple of years and i switched to it during the vr development because with Unity and Unreal Engine projects, you can keep your project in version control, but that's really only going to be useful for the C Sharp or C++ code that you're writing. But both of those game engines also use very large blobs of XML data to represent different objects that the engine is using. And you can store those, and some of these are like laughably large, like... Not quite as bad as some of Dave's DDRs, <laughs> but far bigger than the limits for what they were allowing in version control under plain text. So Git has a feature called large file storage that you could basically keep binary files in your project in, in the same version, but they're stored separately. And GitHub had support for that, but it was pretty experimental at the time and had relatively low limits and the Unity integration was marked as experimental, and Bitbucket had much higher limits on it and a much more stable implementation of it. So I just migrated yeah. over to there. But now that I'm hmm. doing that type of work, I'm like, well, I guess I don't really need this anymore. So. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're about to have large XML files in your repos. That's true. Well, are Test we... data and things like that. I have a yeah. tendency to periodically put those into the repo, particularly if they're being run for common testing and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a consideration then. Hmm. I know GitHub has added large file storage as an official feature, but I wanted to take a look at that. Yeah, I never even got asked about it with Bitbucket. Yeah. It was just throw large files in a repo and they just kind of go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a certain 
cutoff at where it automatically starts using that feature after a certain file size. <laughs> so, I mean, it's also been handy for clones of FileMaker databases that I keep in repos too, because some of those can be pretty big, even without the data. Some of them, some of the larger, older, cruftier systems are you know, 30 or 40 megs. So yeah, anyway, that's kind of what mm -hmm. we're going to be working on. Lots of UJS and then figuring out how to actually work on the same project together without stepping on each other's toes. And yeah, should be interesting couple of weeks or months or however long it takes. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Dave's in charge of the project. So. <laughs> it's 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 gonna be better. Mm. It will be worth the pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>